Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. So, Katie, for the Words Matter Library, we like to highlight books, speeches, podcasts, things that we like in this space. And I know for the end of the year, we wanted to highlight one that you particularly enjoyed doing. Tell us a little bit about the Ginsburg Tapes. So the Ginsburg Tapes is a podcast series that is written and recorded by a woman named Lauren Moxley, who is a brilliant blonde big law attorney in Washington, D.C., and took the time to really delve into not the cases that Justice Ginsburg has dealt with on the bench, but the cases that she argued before the Supreme Court when she was an advocate. And she goes sometimes line by line of the arguments and really teases out what was going on in the country at the time when there were a lot of civil rights issues and hotly contested and debated questions going up to the Supreme Court. And she walks you through how the notorious RBG worked through all of those arguments and came to be the advocate that she was at the time and is known for today. And and many Supreme Court watchers and journalists and experts will tell you that Justice Ginsburg will actually be more well-known in the history books for her role as an advocate before the court than even as a justice. And uh, we'll see if that rings true, but it's definitely worth a listen. It's called The Ginsburg Tapes by Lauren Moxley, and I highly recommend it. I am thrilled to welcome our guest today, Lauren Moxley. Lauren is a lawyer here in Washington, D.C., where she practices appellate litigation and privacy law, and she's also the host of the Ginsburg Tapes podcast about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's oral arguments before the then-all-male Supreme Court of the United States from 1972 to 1978, before she became the notorious RBG. The Ginsburg Tapes allows the listener to be a fly on the wall for some of the most important cases in American jurisprudence as future Justice Ginsburg challenged laws treating men and women differently. In between the actual Supreme Court recordings, Lauren puts the cases, the law, and even the justices themselves in historical context and explains how, as a lawyer, RBG really did change the world. Lauren Moxley, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So I'm always excited for our interviews, all of the guests that we have here on Words Matter. But I have to say for this interview and talking to you is particularly special because I love the podcast. And like you, I'm a student and a follower. And I think even as a journalist, I can say a big fan of Justice Ginsburg. So before we get to all of the background and, and, and how we got here, how did this project start? Sure. So as you mentioned, I am a lawyer here in D.C., and I practice privacy law and appellate law. And I wanted to learn more about effective oral advocacy and how to be a a better appellate litigator. And so I learned that the Supreme Court puts all oral arguments dating back to 1955 online. And so I thought, okay, this can be my new podcast. I'll listen to oral arguments from the past as I walk to work. And I typed in the first person that I thought of, which was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I pressed play on her first oral argument, and I was just so struck by the power of that tape because it's not just that you hear her make her case to the Supreme Court, 
but you can also hear the justices grapple with what the Constitution means, and you can really get a feel for the courtroom on that day. And I knew that there's this cult of RBG of fans like you and fans like so many people that I know who just love the justice. And I realized there's so much I didn't know about her that other people would also want to learn so they could learn with me. And I thought that through that project and through that existing really strong interest in RBG herself, we could learn about a lot of other things like constitutional law, the power of the Supreme Court, sex equality, and really the power of one person to make a difference. Yeah, I like how at the beginning of the first episode, you kind of introduced the concept of the podcast and do a little bit of a breakdown of appellate law, because a lot of us are not appellate lawyers. I certainly am not, although I'm happy to be across the table from a fellow DC big law woman attorney. Podcaster. Uh, (laughs) Girl power. I found that helpful, even as a a lawyer, to talk about the import and the impact of appellate litigation, and particularly on a podcast where words matter. That's really all there is in an appellate case. When you're before a panel of three judges, or in this case, nine justices, we usually think of lawyers, as you say on the podcast, at the trial level, bringing in the facts and making arguments and presenting a full case. But by the time you get to the appellate process. It's usually about one narrow piece of the law, and the words are the only thing that matter in that courtroom and how how the judge or justices interpret it. So I found that really helpful. So now, basically, that RBG has become mythicized as the notorious RBG, you're basically doing the the behind-the-music special for her work and her legacy. That's right. So you studied these cases and these justices in law school, but what surprised you the most as you began your deep dive into the Ginsburg tapes? Yeah, a bunch of things surprised me. One one major example was that just how her career trajectory went from when she graduated law school until she became a judge. So when she graduated, even though she was the top of her class at Columbia Law School, as she had been at Harvard Law School, she really struggled to find a job. And she had to even have a professor call a judge on the Southern District of New York and really pressure him to hire her as a clerk. Right. And then she studied Swedish civil procedure. And so, you know, it's not exactly the type of beginning of a career that we've seen from so many Supreme Court justices because of the sexism that she was experiencing at the time. And so she ends up working at Rutgers School of Law, which was one of the only tenure-track jobs available to women in the country. And it's not until even a few years after that that she really makes a transition to focusing on women's rights issues. And obviously, there's a lot to say about what happens next. But uh, by the time she's 47, she's a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And she's argued six times before the Supreme Court and really become a repeat player. So I really loved watching that trajectory. I was also surprised about lots of little things. I mean, I was struck when they would say the case reporter numbers when— they were speaking. She does. That's right. And that's an she example. She gives them the right. site right in the middle of the oral argument. Exactly. So she'll say, you know, Frontiero, and then she'll say the case number. And that's striking because we don't do that anymore because right. digital research makes it easy. And yeah. there are examples of historical things that were surprising. You mentioned that she became a judge on the D.C. Circuit. And I have uh, I cover the D.C. Circuit and, and do some writings on that as well. So I will be pushing for perhaps a part two of the Ginsburg tapes and maybe what she was like on the bench when she was first starting, because those, I imagine, are also interesting to listen to as she transitioned. So 
One of the many great things about your podcast is, yes, we get to know RBG before she became RBG, and we get to hear about her as a lawyer in her own words, but we also get to hear the questions and comments, some of the most consequential and transformational justices in American legal history. So as you point out, these cases were argued 1972 to 1978. She went on the D.C. Circuit in 1980. The court was and would remain all-male until Justice Sandra Day O'Connor got appointed in 1981 by President Reagan. So how was it for RBG as a woman to be arguing before the all-male court in the 70s? At several different points in the tapes, you can hear Ginsburg change in the way that she's advocating to the justices. And I think when she was commenting on the movie about her, they said, you know, is there anything about this movie that doesn't seem accurate? And she said, I didn't stutter because in her first oral argument, she didn't stutter. You can hear on episode one, her make her points to the court in a really strong way. But I think that you can really also tell a difference from her first oral argument to her second and her third and her fourth, where she really becomes quite commanding in the courtroom. And she pushes back on the justices when they aren't getting certain concepts that have come up time and time again. You know, by the time of her fourth oral argument, the justices were still pressing on her to trying to understand how laws that on their face purported to benefit women actually could hold them back. So even today, the vast majority of oral advocates before the court are male. And so just imagine what right. it was like in Ginsburg's shoes back in 1973 when she was first stepping up to the podium. And I think she really did an excellent job um, in her first oral argument, which was a short argument as an amicus party in the Frontiero case. And over the course of the different oral arguments, you can really hear her kind of grow into an even more confident voice. And when all of the justices are not necessarily understanding some of her very central points, you can really hear her take command in a way that was kind of necessary to have a woman there making those points and to speak to those issues. So I imagine that's helpful for you as an appellate lawyer to listen and practice as you hear her. Absolutely. A side benefit for your your own practice. Right. I want to talk about a cast of characters that uh, were around during this time. Let's start off with Justice Thurgood Marshall. Mm -hmm. He was an iconic civil rights lawyer and the first black member of the Supreme Court. And RBG patterned so much of her legal strategy on what Marshall had done at the NAACP in the 40s and 50s and 60s. How does that play out on the tapes? That's right. I think that Justice Marshall's strategy with NAACP was such a precursor to what Ginsburg did at the ACLU. And so my ears always perked up when he asked a question in these oral arguments, because he, here is someone who definitely sees what's what's transpiring in the court, which is yet another person coming forward and really pushing the Constitution to become more equal and more representative in our country. In his questioning, he often really pushed the lawyers to answer directly. So I can remember a couple instances in the six tapes where the lawyer wasn't answering his question and they were kind of going in a different direction, he would come back at them and say, no, I'm asking you this particular thing and I really need you to answer it. And those really stuck out to me as interesting lessons learned for all lawyers out there. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Another character, Justice William O. Douglas, mm -hmm. he was appointed in 1939 by Franklin Roosevelt. Douglas still holds the record for the longest tenure on the Supreme Court. 
And he wrote the majority opinion in Griswold v. Connecticut, which defines the right of personal privacy and was the precursor to Roe v. Wade in 1973. But Douglas also had a reputation for being very difficult on lawyers arguing before him, even those with whom he agreed. Mm -hmm. What was RBG's experience with Mr. Justice Douglas? I love this question. So Justice Douglas did something really interesting in one of these cases. In Ginsburg's first case before the Supreme Court, where she actually had an oral argument in Frontiero, that case resulted in a plurality of four justices who wanted to extend strict scrutiny to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex, which was the entire mission of Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project's goals. And so it really seemed like he was going to be a strong and dependent vote for her side. And there's this really interesting case called Khan versus Shevin, which was about a Florida law that said that female widows get a special property tax exemption that's not available to male widowers. And he actually switched sides and joined people who weren't as ready to side with Ginsburg's ultimate project in the Khan case. And the speculation is that it's because of his mother. So William O. Douglas grew up um, in a house where his father died when he was quite young. And he and his siblings had to work to help the family, and he really saw his mother struggle. And so I think that's one of the reasons that he ended up going and flipping in that case and saying that this property tax exemption was actually constitutional. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that background on him. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you about that case in a bit because I believe that was her loss, right? That's her right. only loss? Yes. Okay. We could go through all of them. That would take a few more episodes. Mm -hmm. But the last justice I really want to talk about is Harry Blackman. Yeah. Now, he was appointed by Richard Nixon in 1970 and is a great example of how some presidents are disappointed in their (laughs) Supreme Court picks. Justice Blackman eventually became known as one of the most liberal justices on the court and was the author of the majority opinion we know in Roe v. Wade. But let's talk about Justice Blackman's notes. What did he write about RBG after her oral argument in Frontiero v. Richard? Right. So these notes are available in the Library of Congress. And so you can actually go take them out and hold them in your hands, handwritten notes that he wrote, which is a, it's a real pleasure and also can be surprising. So after her first oral argument, he wrote that she he gave her a C plus for her performance, which is a little harsh a grade. But right. he also wrote that ACLU, New York, and then he had the letter J, which apparently is his notation for Jew which is really shocking. And I struggled to know how to even discuss on the podcast that he would find that relevant to write in his notes. But it's, you know, it's... It's It's there in black and white. Yeah. In your second episode, The Blind, The Lame, and the Widows, which, by the way, I love all of your episode titles. Oh, thank you. Uh, the the beer middle tier one is maybe my favorite. But that that episode, your second episode, examines Khan v. Shebin, which you already spoke about a little bit. But it's the only case that RBG lost after appearing before the court. And you say the case is often glossed over in examinations of RBG's career. But explain a little about the case and why you think it's just as important to talk about her setbacks as her successes. Absolutely. So— This case was about a Florida law, as I mentioned earlier, that gave a special property tax exemption to women who lost their husbands. And 
Ginsburg did not want this case to be her next step in the, in the Supreme Court after Frontiero, her first oral argument. She was really hoping that my favorite case and her favorite case and just a, a wonderful fact case was going to be next, and that was Stephen Weisenfeld's. But the Florida affiliate office of the ACLU actually didn't tell her that they were bringing this case, and then it ended up getting granted, which was not the overall strategy. And so she had to take the take the case at that point when it was it's kind a shame of a surprise. when that happens when a third grant is not part of your <laughs> yeah. overall strategy. Yes, exactly. And the reason why it wasn't part of her overall strategy is because she knew these were tough facts. These were going to be facts that the justices were going to really struggle to see the underlying sexism issue. And so her overall point was that by according women with special uh, property tax exemption and special advantages, perhaps you in the short term give women a a short-term benefit. But in the long term, what these laws actually do is reflect societal values that women belong at home, women are dependent on men, and then to codify those values in a system of American law. But she knew that granting a property tax exemption to the poor widows in Florida, and Justice Marshall even called out, he said the poor spinster in Tallahassee um, was going to be just as affected as a very well-off widow in Palm Beach. So these were difficult facts, but she knew she had to take the case. And I think that this is important to look at, not just when you think about the overall strategy of constitutional change, but also in that no one person's effort is going to be perfect and there is always going to be challenges. Right. You talked about that a little bit in the podcast, these laws that were helpful to women at the time. And in fact, but they argued as a part of, or at least the ACLU lawyer argued in the first case, Frontiero, that those laws actually would be fine and we don't need to apply scrutiny to those, but we can look at the laws that maybe create a detriment or create a problem for women. Is that what he did? Yeah, that's about right. So One of the central missions of the ACLU Women's Rights Project was to show that laws that, which on their face purport to benefit women actually can serve to hold them back from full participation in American life. Right. The language you used was benevolent sexism Mm -hmm. and romantic paternalism. Exactly. Great language. And unlike a lot of other forms of discrimination and invidious discrimination in American society, it's sometimes hard to see if you're not digging deep how laws like this can operate to hold women back. Because, hey, hey, oh, you're getting a property tax exemption. Is that really something that you don't want? And so part of their overall strategy was to show the court and to show this all-male bench of justices that these laws can really operate to hold back both sexes from full participation in American life by really encouraging men to be breadwinners and women to be homemakers without giving much choice. So after immersing yourself in the Ginsburg tapes and all of her arguments over the years, in particular that decade, do you have a favorite moment? You alluded to a favorite case. I have plenty of least favorite moments. I mean, it it really sticks out to me in Califano, which is going to be the next full oral argument breakdown, that the Solicitor General's office said that part of the reason for this case is that feminism is in fashion and feminists would just like to ride on its skirt tails. Wow. And so that was a pretty wow moment indeed and um, shocking. That Um, is the first time I have heard the phrase skirt tails. I can't believe that hadn't come up in 2016. I mean, exactly. It's crazy. I I also really enjoyed probably my, my favorite 
case definitely was Steven Weisenfeld's case. Right. But I just had so much fun with the near beer in the middle tier episode. Yeah, that was great. Um, and Ranger Fred, who that was the only episode I've done where it wasn't Ginsburg arguing the case. We had someone else who was arguing, and he was really fun for me to focus on. So talk about your, your favorite case, the Weisenfeld case. So Steven Weisenfeld was a young man who had lost his wife. She had died in childbirth. And he wrote a letter to his local newspaper describing how a Social Security benefit that would have been available had the gender roles been reversed to his wife wasn't available to him. And he said at the end of his letter, I I wonder if Gloria Steinem knows about this. And Gloria Steinem might not have known about it, but that letter connected him with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so she represented him in challenging this Social Security law that said that sole surviving mothers could be entitled to special benefits when they had a very low income, something like $14,000 a year in today's dollars, but that that same benefit wasn't available to stay-at-home fathers who were sole surviving fathers. And so Stephen Weisenfeld was just this really wonderful plaintiff. And I know that he and Ginsburg stayed in touch throughout their lives, and she even performed his marriage about 40 years later at the Supreme Court. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Supreme Court oral arguments, we know, are not on video. There is no camera in the courtroom. There's only audio recording available, and we may be biased here. But do you think the podcast medium itself, the one you've chosen, the one I've chosen, is uniquely suited to be able to talk about and explain and break down Supreme Court arguments and their import? I definitely do. And I think that with podcasts, something that's really amazing is that it's all about your ideas and your voice. We don't take into account visual judgments and it leaves a lot of room for empathy and for trying to understand an idea for an idea's sake. It's a very words matter concept. And I think the same is true for oral arguments. They're such purely about the words and purely about the ideas and that's something that is, yeah, that's something that's really very precious. Right. I was thinking about her and the concept of having videos in the courtroom this week Mm -hmm. because, as we know, Justice Stevens passed away. Mm -hmm. And his very last day on the bench was a remarkable day for him, but also for her. And it was in 2010 when her husband, Marty Ginsburg, passed away the day before. And she went on the bench to read opinions and was there that day. And the, I believe the Chief Justice spoke fondly of Marty and and Justice Stevens, you know, gave his goodbyes. Yeah, but she was there, strong as ever, the day after the love of her life, who had been her career supporter and family supporter and really her backbone. She was on the court. So Justice Stevens passing away made me think of her and wish that there had been a camera in the courtroom that day because it would have been certainly a sight to see, I think. So in the modern world, there's a book, there's a movie, there's a t-shirt, there's, you know, a coffee table book, there's a bobblehead, (laughs) there's all of this love and affection Mm -hmm. for her. Mm -hmm. But have you found through your work any criticisms or any room for improvement or uh, parts of her legacy that we don't put on the mantle? Yeah, I mean, of course, no one is perfect and um, no movement is perfect, but in history, always allows you to learn lessons. And I try not to have my podcast be hagiography, but rather a place to really explore these ideas. And I think that one critique of the overall movement that I think was really a reflection of the laws as they existed at the time is that it wasn't entirely an inclusive set of arguments. So one of the central missions of the ACLU Women's Rights Project was to show that so much of American law really 
codified and perpetuated this notion that women belonged at home and men at work. And I think that's obviously a very important and laudable objective. But at the same time, you know, women of color have always worked in this country. And so it was almost coming from a position of privilege and also just a reflection of the privilege that is part of American law. And I think Serena Mayeri, who's a professor at UPenn, has done a ton of important work talking about this connection between sex discrimination and race discrimination as a matter of legal doctrine. And I really like that Sheep's pointed to some of the original statements of Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's our representative, as well as Polly Murray, who was a huge influence on Ginsburg's project. And both of these women were speaking out at, in this 1970s contemporary with the Ginsburg's movement saying, you know, we should really look to communities of color as a source of strength and as an example for how households can be more egalitarian. While those discussions were happening at the time, it's also important to recognize that not everyone was enjoying the fruits of this movement right. in the same way. Right. It's still true today. Black and brown women experience the world and even the feminist movement differently based on the results and the fruits of her labor, but also its setbacks as well. So what's next for you? You Is there a Ginsburg tapes part two, her on the bench, or is there, are you going to look at another justice or is this just focusing on her six oral arguments and really spreading the Ginsburg gospel for now? <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to finish her two oral arguments that I haven't covered yet. I have so many other ideas of things that I want to do. I would love to do an episode on the ERA, do an episode on transgender issues, which I, you know, all of these cases are so gender binary. I have a list of things I want to do, but time is elusive. And as you know, moonlighting as a podcaster while a big law attorney is challenging. It is challenging sometimes. How do people find you and your wonderful Ginsburg Dapes podcast? Is there a website, Instagram? What's the best way for people to find you? Sure. You can find me at Ginsburg Tapes on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter, uh, my personal account at Lauren Moxley. And the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your regular podcast diet. That's right. One other thing I wanted to ask you before we let you go is a lot of RBG's clerks clued her in on her fame and the notorious RBG hashtag and the website and the memes and all of that. And she tends to have a good beat on what's going on out in the world about her and and people talking about her and her reputation. So has it gotten to her desk or landed on her ear yet that you are doing the Ginsburg tapes? Do you know if she knows? I don't know if she knows. I have been very privileged to be able to sit across the table from her at dinner a couple of times. And if I ever get that privilege again, I will most certainly tell her about the work that you've been doing because I'm sure that's something she'd be interested in doing. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 